Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's take a look at the trailer for Devil's Knot. Michael, but I told him he better be home by 4.30. I don't see the boy nowhere. Stevie! Come on home! Y'all got anybody out there looking for my boy? We are doing everything we can. My son is eight years old! We have three boys missing from Holiday Garden. Stevie! It's a very delicate situation. Can you hear me? I'm in the woods by that little creek they call Devil's Den. (laughs) I found something. Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly will be charged in the murders of the three boys we found last month in the Robin Hood Woods. Part of our investigation. We'll need hair samples from the two of you. Take it. Just take it. Just take all of it. This crime is unthinkable. What if they did it? What if they didn't? Some residents suspect a satanic cult is responsible. That look like freaks. My name's Ron Lax, I'm an investigator. Did you kill any of those three boys? No. Those cops are scary. They will do anything to get people to say what they want to hear. I'm acting right. I'm not acting all, Terry. Are you? What the hell are you talking about? These boys that you're helping, the police seem so certain. Are you sure you want to do this? Yes, I am. Religion gives people who want to do evil the justification for what they do. But did you ever find any evidence to link these murders to Damien? You don't talk to her, understand? I have a right to hear what he says. You're supposed to be a grieving mother. You start behaving like one. You understand why I have to help him? The police, the judge, everybody. This is all just some sort of game to them. Would you want three more families to lose their children to? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this afternoon's guest moderator from IndieWire, Nigel Smith, and today's guest, Adam Egoyan. Hi, everyone. Thanks for showing up. So, Adam, you just got back from Arkansas when? This morning? Yeah. This morning. Early, yeah. Now, was that for the U.S. premiere of the film? Yeah, it was an amazing uh, event. We um, basically, a lot of the family were there uh, Jason Baldwin. Um, and Pam uh, Hobbs was there, and uh, a lot of people who were connected to the case. It was, it was the place where it was tried, and so it was a, a really amazing collision of like fiction and reality, and there was this moment where I was watching Pam Hobbs, who was just in front of me, uh, as she was watching Reese perform her, and it was the scene in the courtroom where Reese turns away, and Right before Reese left the, the room, like Pam left the theater because she was just so overwhelmed. And so it was a very wrought emotional evening, but it was fantastic. At the end of it, Pam stood up and, and thanked us all for having made the film, and it was really overwhelming. Was that Pam's first time seeing yeah, the she'd actual seen it, finished she, film? Yeah, she, she'd seen it in the afternoon. There was a special screening for the family, 
Uh, but it was the first day she'd seen it. So she saw it before she saw it last night. Now, I'm Canadian. Uh, you were raised in Canada. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I was not wholly familiar with the case of the West Memphis Three right. before moving here like five or so years ago and seeing the documentaries and seeing your wonderful film. Um, how familiar with you, were you with the case before embarking on this project? Well, I, I'd seen the original documentary in 96 when it came out. Um, and it left an impression, but I, I can't... I can't confess that I was one of these people who was obsessed by the case. I mean, um, so when I was presented with this script, I, I just plunged back into it. I just, I, I remembered the feelings I had watching the documentary, but also I just became aware of how unique the case was. Uh, Reread Meryl Leverett's book and just saw that there was this opportunity to make uh, a film which um, could not be resolved and yet had all of the uh, atmosphere of kind of a classic crime thriller and you know it was a such a horrifying um, crime scene like unimaginable these three eight-year-old boys are found naked bound mutilated uh, tied with their own shoelaces uh, pushed in, you know submerged into a swamp and yet there's absolutely no evidence around them there's no footprints or there's no blood or DNA no no branches have been touched it was very very supernatural and, and, and extreme so um, this happens in a town that's steeped in, in religion and, and, and very s strong spiritual senses of what's good and bad. And so this is clearly an act of evil. So they needed to find um, the demons. And when they weren't readily found, they created them. And um, it, it, you, know, you can see it as a contemporary witch hunt. But it, for me, it was also this study of like um, what happens in a in a judicial process where there's nothing but circumstantial evidence and a lot of different possible suspects or avenues are actually um, not followed because they're so intent on these um, completely convincing perpetrators or, or a perpetrator, I should mm -hmm. say. And you know, I, I just felt it was a really great place to situate a drama and uh, to try and understand at all moments like what each of these people were feeling as human beings, not, not to uh, make caricatures of them or certainly, even though there were like huge mistakes made from the police point of view and obvious you know, um, um, violations of the judicial system, I think, in terms of ra railroading certain ideas. But nevertheless, there was always an understanding of why the human human beings involved did this. And so I also wanted the viewer, you know, for the people who don't know anything about the case, um, the film is really designed for those individuals because it's, it's, um, it, it introduces the case to you, but it also makes you understand why the town would uh, put their focus on these three young men. Um, there was a series of kind of, I don't want to give it away, but, the, but it just sort of, you, you, are, you are led to understand why they, suspicion was drawn to these people, you believe it yourself, and then you begin to see that dismantled. And so you're actually experiencing it, hopefully, like the town might have felt it as well. You, you get the sense of outrage of the crimes, like how terrible the crimes were, but you're also kind of put through all these various stages. And the whole time, of course, you're having to understand and try to realize, like, how, how do we come to any sense of truth? I mean, because there's so many possible explanations and that's, that was the real challenge of this film, like how to, how to fit in all of these different interpretations. 
So I went, we went back to the book and there are all these other suspects that could have been brought forward, um, should have been examined, um, but they were somehow edited out of the uh, narrative of the West Memphis Three. So this film was an attempt to put that all back in and create this crazy um, world where you're just, your mind is swimming with possibilities without ever arriving at a conclusion. It's a bit, I call it Kafkaesque because I always love that line from the castle where they talk, uh, where um, the reason some things fail um, is because of that thing itself. It's like, you know, the reason why s certain systems don't work is for no other reason than the very nature of the system. And I think that that's what we're seeing at play here. Now, watching this film, I couldn't help but draw parallels, as I'm sure many have, to um, one of my favorite films of yours, The Sweet Hereafter, just about the fact that, you know, it deals with a small town coping with the loss, yeah. with the loss of children. What kind of parallels did you, no doubt, draw um, when first, you know, coming across this story and, and wanting to make it into a film? Well, I think, it, yes, you could say that it... I think tonally the films are really different. Very different. I mean, yeah. the, sweet here, the Sweet Hereafter is, is very poetic. Yeah. And The Sweet Hereafter is dealing a lot with um, a very particular romance. I mean, there are a number of romances in The Sweet Hereafter, and this doesn't have much romance at all. No. <laughs> and, I, and, and I don't mean romance in, well, actually in a creepy way, maybe in the, in, well, in a very creepy way in The Sweet Hereafter, maybe. But there's, a, there's a, an emotional, um, yeah, romantic linkage and there's a lyricism in that film, and, and that's not what this story is about. This is a lot more factual, and uh, it's not as interp well because the of the nature of the story itself being so open to interpretation. I didn't, I didn't do, I didn't go with the approach. I mean, Sweet Hereafter is a very personal movie, uh, uh, even though it's based on on a book. Um, there are a number of things that were elaborated, which were really personal to me, and so it's a different type of project, I think. Though, yes, a town dealing with unimaginable loss. Yeah. So we have two clips from the film. Um, do you <clears> want to set up the first clip? Yeah, the first, the first clip is uh, uh, introducing this character that you would, if you know the documentaries, you may not be familiar with, um, Chris Morgan. And he is brought up as a, as a possible suspect. And you'll see what happens to him later on in the second clip. But um, why don't we have a look at it? Was it this young man? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's him. I think Pam fixed him a plate. There was so much food. Bobby asked us for a picture once, Stevie. Yeah, um, he come over here, wanted to show Stevie a ring of some kind of metal or something like a skull or a snake and then he asked me for a picture Stevie and I gave him one okay, okay. Well, I need to get some pictures Stevie to show the people we interview. And, uh, also, we're, uh, we're going to need to go ahead and get blood and hair samples from the two of you. Just 
you know, part of our investigation. Just take all of it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. Is that gonna help? <laughs> uh, so, 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 I mean, Reese uh, Witherspoon gives this extraordinary performance. She really completely inhabits this role in a way that's uh, so selfless really because she looks unlike she's ever looked in any movie I, I've ever seen her in. She really does inhabit this southern mom and um, this is the, I should have set it up, but this is the scene right after the discovery of the bodies where she's quite drugged out and the, the detective comes and the detective comes with this picture of this person who in fact uh, did visit the house um, sometime before and the and the the friend asked for a photo of Stevie that he took with him and I realized as a filmmaker we shot this scene uh, which I didn't include of Bobby Angelo the dark-haired guy uh, taking the photo from Reese and saying thank you but we also were shooting you know he was saying he was wearing uh, jewelry with skulls on it and we shot these close-ups of, you know, you saw them eating chicken. We shot these close-ups of the jewelry and the skulls. And I realized as I was editing it that I was making him, like, suspect number one, right? <laughs> just, just, by, just by including stuff that was on the transcript. Most of the stuff that's in this film is actually drawn from court transcripts or from police interview material. It's, it's not made up as such. So, um, but as a filmmaker, of course, you, you, you can put any emphasis you want. And maybe one of the issues I had with these t excellent documentaries, which I think are really amazing, but they, but they very clearly say, this is the person you should have gone after, or, or, or this is the narrative. It should have been, and, and they create a, in the viewer's mind, the sense that um, justice could have been served if this avenue had been followed. But I'm not so sure if each of the suspects that they're labeling are not as, um, ultimately, as, 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 as um, open as the, the three men who ended up being uh, indicted, you know? So it's, it's really this deeply mysterious case. It's so upsetting that the killer is still out there and we can't really know specifically who it is. And yet the narrative has been closed by how justice was meted out and the nature of this Alford plea that the boys have taken and, and now been released with. But it, it raised all sorts of issues as a filmmaker. And when you talk about the suite hereafter, I mean, you, I could go anywhere with those images. I mean, because they're from my imagination. It's my own script. It's, it's really uh, a narrative I can take any way I want. I put in the Pied Piper. I, I was able to create these very subjective experiences of what the characters were feeling. But when you make a film like this, you're really uh, tied to certain uh, specific realities, especially when you know the case is uh, so um, obsessively followed by certain people. I mean, if you go on the, on the net and you, and you look up West Memphis 3, there are a number of sites that are dedicated to this and which present every piece of evidence, everything that was entered in the courtroom during the trial, all the police surveillance tapes, all the interrogations. The next clip that we're about to see uh, is based on a video um, document that you can see online, which is the actual interrogation of Christopher Morgan. 
So now we're recreating it with uh, Dane DeHane. And, and um, um, so even in the performance, there was an attempt to use the words, but of course we're interpreting and he's giving certain emphasis, so it changes the meaning. It's, it's, it was unlike any other experience I've ever had as a filmmaker. It, it was so rich in material and yet, um, you know, you had to be careful. And it took me a long time to edit this film. We were talking about what I was up to. I mean, it took a year to edit this. I actually shot another film in the meantime because it was just, there were so many different ways it could be structured. And yet you had to, you had to, it had to chronologically make sense and it had to stick to what actually happened. So it was all this internal um, tweaking and harnessing and rearranging um, to, to make it, cohesive as a drama at the same time as it had to be an encyclopedia of everything that happened in that town 20 years ago. You must have felt immense pressure just in, in, in making this project, let alone yeah. completing it. Um, how, how did you manage that and how did you, how did you get through it? Well, th that's why it took so long. It, it, it really was about, first and foremost, I mean, you know, absolutely serving the West Memphis Three. I mean, making making it clear um, that they were innocent. However, I also wanted us to understand why they were victimized. Like, it didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, there, there were reasons. And so, um, again, I'm sort of, this is like spoiler alerts or all that stuff, but um, I mean, the ideal viewer for this, of this film doesn't know anything about the case at all. And it's just sort of watching it for the first time, um, which is difficult maybe, you know, with a, a kind of a festival audience or with critics, but it's shocking how many people don't watch documentaries and you know, don't know about the case. So they're just plunged into this world where they see this horrifying crime, they see the suspects, and then they're actually feeling, as I say, like what the actual machinations are. But that just took a long time because I'm manipulating that and I had to be very clear about um, what I was, yeah, why I was making the decisions I was making. It was, it was very different. Like, my films by nature are very subjective and, and, and they're, not, they're not linear. And so I could make incredible allowances with timeline and it's part of the way I structure my stories. But this, this I thought could be like that going in. But once you start editing it, you could go, well, you can't really do that because it gets too confusing and there's just too much going on. Would you ever take on a project like this That's, again? Wow, not, not immediately. And... and, and um, I would your be, next film you wrote yourself. Yeah, yeah. The next one's uh, an original story, and I wrote it myself and produced it myself. So it's sort of more on the model of my earlier work, um, and I'm 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 comfortable with that, and it's I'm proud of that, and it's it's probably you know m my core business as 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 you might say. But but this was just irresistible. Like I just I, I'm fascinated by how we construct ideas of truth, like how or reality, like like you know like. Uh, Sweet Hereafter deals with that, obviously, and, and, and Exotica, and uh, a lot of my films are Ararat, and, and certainly, you know, Adoration, and Chloe, I guess, too, in its own way, and they're all kind of like where, you know, we all have a psychological need to believe that something is real for certain reasons. There's always an agenda, but then that intersects at some point with um, someone else's expectation or desire, and that zone is very interesting to me, you know, like how you negotiate that. Again, this is not a film that's dealing with romantic love. I'm, normally, I'm dealing with notions of, of, of passion, but, but there's something obviously very passionate about the extent of pain that these characters are, are, are reeling from. There's also this, 
odd thing, which I've come to realize, like last night especially, when we were, had the premiere, is that you have uh, two kind of movie stars that are not acting like movie stars. You know, like you have Colin Firth uh, playing a private investigator who's working for the publicly appointed defense team, uh, who are very green, who had never been in a courtroom before. And he's there working pro bono because he, um, he's against the death penalty and the boys are facing the death penalty. But as he's doing the investigation and as he's spending time in the courtroom, he realizes that in fact they're innocent, that there is no um, evidence against them and it's all being cooked up. And there's nothing he can do. So even though he's dressed, you know, in real life, Ron Lax is a very successful private investigator, and he's dressed like the, uh, the knight in shining white armor. He looks like Atticus Finch, but he doesn't get to be like Atticus Finch. The, like, he doesn't have that agency. And, and I think that that's also a frustration that the viewer feels, and it's, it puts you, again, in that place where there's a helplessness. Like, you see this unfolding, but you don't think there's anything that can be done about it. And Ryan Reynolds appears in your next film that's playing at the Cannes Film Festival. And yeah. like, like this work, he appears not to be the Ryan Reynolds that oh, we all know. Oh, he's amazing in the new movie. Yeah. I mean, I just can't. I'm so excited, too. How much pleasure do you take from, from taking you know, a star like that, like Reese, like Colin, and just kind of breaking them down and making them see, see, seem new to, to an audience? Well, it's very gratifying. Like, I think, uh, like last week, um, it's in, in, we're talking about how crazy this month is between the three movies. But in the middle of it all, there was the tragic news that Bob Hoskins had passed away. And there was a, an article in The Guardian which said that um, of all the roles, like, like the best, the, the, his masterpiece was Felicia's Journey, which is a film we did in 99. And that was a complete reinvention of Bob Hoskins. Like he was doing something he'd never done before. Um, and it was a very scary character for him. And I love being in that place. I love that idea of a character uh, who has a persona and using that persona and, and shifting people's perceptions of it. It's just, it's so, it's a very exciting zone because the actor really has to go out on a limb and, and they have to feel afraid a little bit and they have to trust me and it's, uh, it can create something quite, quite amazing. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's in 10 days. I'll see you in Cannes in 10 yeah. days. Is that surreal? Yeah, if it's going to have this world premiere. Yeah. Well, let's show the, the, the so, second yeah. clip. So this, th this, again, is based on actual um, visual... Like, you can go online and look up uh, Chris Morgan's police interrogation, and you'll see the actual recording of what happened that night. And this is us now taking a film camera and recreating the same scene. Hey, boss. Here's one I don't remember seeing before. Who's Christopher Morgan? Did you in any way participate in causing the death of any of those three boys? No. Do you know for sure who caused those boys to die? No. Are you holding back any information about those three boys? No. Polygraph showed deception. He says you went off the chart. I don't know why I failed it. I must have been nervous. legal obligation to get to the truth I'm telling you the truth or to exonerate you if you weren't involved but based on the polygraph results I don't feel like you're being completely honest what do you want me to do you want me to lie to you okay I'm gonna lie I killed him and all the other bull are you arresting me no I am not 
so I mean, for 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 people who are really interested in film, it'd just be interesting to go online and to see what that material looks like because you're going to hear the same text, but it's it's not dramatized, right? So uh, you're not as invested in it, and yet what's actually being um, what's actually being said, and what we cut it out, but what, what, the way this character goes on to implicate himself in the video is kind of shocking. So, and yet, you'll see in the film what happens to this tangent. It's sort of uh, this other person who confessed to the crime and then retracted it and then confessed again, much like J Jesse did, who kind of started the whole uh, vendetta against the West Memphis Three. So it's just, yeah. This is the craziest thing to talk about because I don't want to give away for people who don't know, but maybe a lot of you already know the case, so I, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, why don't we get a, sh a sign of hands as to who knows the case and who, who's not really wholly familiar with it? Oh, that's great. Okay, okay so, so, so it's, it's half, like, half. so that's, that's <laughs> great. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, was inter it was interesting because for the people who, who, who know nothing about it, I think the film just, you know, it, it, it just, it's, it's really powerful because you're just plunged into this space without any of the theories. You know, now, two of the West Memphis three are our co-producers on the project, um, Jesse and Jason. So they're obviously supportive of of your vision. But um, but Damien Eccles, right. has he seen the film? I'm not sure if he's seen the film. He read the first draft and he had a very strong reaction, uh, which we uh, listened to certainly. And and uh, um, you know because because the film is trying to situate how these outsiders were viewed by the community, we actually. Uh, as part of the plan of the film, um, show you know his outsiderness and actually try to, and I think he reacted and thought that he was being re-victimized. So we really toned that down. We took it back completely. Um, but I think maybe even more than that, like Damien, you know, has his own story, we, and that story is very much about what happened to him uh, right after and what happened to him as he was in prison, and 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 also how he. You know, form this relationship, and it's the subject of his book, uh, which, which came out. And um, I think he just really felt that he wanted to tell his story, which I completely respect, and he should do. But um, but it was odd because his you know his his family was there, but he wasn't last night. Last yeah. night, yeah. Wow. Hmm. What do they what, what do they think? Um, again, I think they were just overwhelmed by yeah. it. You know, um, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to them as much because I was just so consumed with talking to, to Pam and, and Jason and and. Uh, yeah, I, I I I saw them there, but I, I it was yeah. really packed last night. It was it was it was it was it was really because there are a lot of the people who are involved with the actual um, uh, the recent um, uh, Alfred plea and uh, a lot of the legal community and it's it's quite a small town like Little Rock and it's just it's just it, 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 you really feel felt that everyone knows each other and um, it was it was an intense evening. Yeah. Going back to Reese's performance in the film, I mean she really just losers herself. In the grief that that Pam undergoes, it's it's almost hard to watch at times. Um, how close did she get with Pam in the making of the film, and and was that was that crucial for you to to, to get those? It two was together? it was really crucial for her. I mean, for I think her. that uh, she spent a lot of time with Pam, and and she just wanted to. Um, I mean, as someone who comes from from the South, it was really important for her to represent the character uh, accurately, and uh, that nothing should feel like cliche or it, it, we shouldn't dismiss it because well that's what happens there or that's the south and it, it really was important that that the uh, details be adhered to that was one of the great things last night too was just you know uh, people feeling that they were back in that space the people from there so that was that was a huge um 
you know, boost to the production team, you know, the, uh, but, but she's really remarkable. I think she let herself go, I mean, with this uh, film in a number of different ways. She just didn't care about the way she looked. She just wanted it to be authentic, and also she wanted it to be part of this ensemble. Like, both Colin and Reese are not playing traditional starring roles. They're, they're part of this fabric, and um, it's kind of selfless, and I, I love that they were so committed, like all the actors were. To, to invest themselves this way. How do you work with actors who have to um, portray grief on screen? I, I can imagine it's an extremely sensitive, um, sensitive process, but I, I'm curious what, what your approach is. Well, I mean, my approach generally is just, I, I'm a very attentive listener. I, I, I really, I, I believe that the only, you know, for all of the efforts that are put on during a film production, everyone being obsessed with their own particular you know, um, job. The only thing that's really magical is what the actors are doing, and that they're physically incarnating the space, and they're investing themselves in that. And that has to be protected. You know, it has to be observed. It has to be watched. Um, and when an actor lets themselves go to that place, I'm just there at the other end and trying to um, appreciate and 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 make sure that it's that it's everything it can be. But it's it's, it's, it's an odd zone. I mean, sometimes in certain films, it's, it's just sort of tipped into another space. And it's, it also has to be, it's a difficult job directing because one part of it is, is quite, you have to be like a surgeon. It's like actually from Sweet Hereafter uh, when Ian Holm is talking about that moment when he's driving uh, the girl whose uh, throat is blocked up and he is holding a knife and he could at any point perform a tracheotomy on her. And so he's saying, at one point, I'm the loving dad. and the other hand, I'm like a surgeon with a scalpel. And maybe directing is a little bit like that, too. You know, you have to be aware of so many technical things um, in terms of what is making the shot, not the least of which is time and schedule, and whether or not you're actually getting the shot, making the day, losing light. But first and foremost, you have to be there for the actor and make sure that they're being attended to. Because a lot of the time, they're not. I mean, I, I think I talk to a lot of actors. I never, I've never been directed by anyone else, so I don't quite know what it feels like. But I think a lot of actors feel that they're left, left on their own. And, and you can't do that when you're asking actors to go to these places. You can't leave them alone. And we're going to open it up to the audience. Sure. So if anyone has a question, please just put your hand up in the air, and a mic will be coming to you. Hi there, thank you for coming, um, sharing your experience and journey. Um, my question was, is there a possibility, I haven't followed the case, I haven't seen the film, I came late, but is there a possibility that it could be the opposite, that they were guilty? And how would you feel if that's the case, proving something so well done in this movie? Well, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, and in a strange sort of way, uh, they've already been uh, victimized and, you know, have served for a crime that they didn't do. So um, it seems improbable to re-victimize them. So, um, and I think the, the more you go into it, 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 it's, from my point of view, it, there's no evidence at all. I mean, look, I mean, you had an entire... They, they, not only were they tried, they, they, they served appeals, they were retried, and everything was sort of brought... Um, forward that could have been brought forward and there was still no hard evidence so it, it just seems completely unlikely um, 
and, and, and quite impossible. Thank you. Arafat was such a, an amazing film. How did you come to that project? Well, well, th that's the other film that uh, <laughs> talked about responsibility. There was a lot of responsibility. Um, it, it's, it's, um, I came to that project because I, I always knew I had to do that film at some point. I, I'm Armenian. It's a film that's dealing with the uh, Armenian genocide, but more about the repercussions of that into the present day and um, dealing with four generations. And um, it was a project that I b had been thinking of doing since my early 20s. I just didn't really have the means or the opportunity until um, a very special producer uh, approached me and, 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 and allowed me to embark on it. Um, but like with this film, though for totally different reasons, I did feel also that sense of responsibility, though um, I didn't feel as constricted as I, as I did with West Memphis 3 because it's, it is the product of my imagination. Even though I'm talking about the history of my people, um, the stories are, are fictionalized. They're, not, they're, not, they're based on some elements of reality, but not a well-known reality. This is a, a very known reality, so it was a different set of challenges. But I remain really proud of that film, and thank you so much. Thank you. Hi. Hi. I was wondering if you went back to the town that I was... Um, filmed or took place and beyond the documentaries and transcripts if you talk to any of the people and then in hindsight how their reaction was to share their perspective of it when they know um, what's kind of happened since then and if that really changed from what you heard of the transcripts and how you really tried to align that to be representative. Well here's the interesting thing I mean let's make no mistake about this there are people especially in West Memphis in the town who still believe that the three young men did it. Uh, because that's the narrative that they've been uh, raised to believe. Uh, and it actually creates a sense of closure. Because if you don't believe that narrative, uh, it's such a raw issue. The, the, the murder of, of children is the worst possible crime, not just for the parents, but for the community around. And it's a small town. So, the um, labeling of um, the three as the perpetrators was really convenient and it, it felt so good because they were so odd, especially Damien, he was such an outsider. So um, it allows many people to kind of seal it. I talked to the current police chief. I went to, I went to West Memphis and I spent some time there. Uh, I, the current police chief was a young officer at the time and he believes that, that they did it. I mean, he, he, he believes that uh, there were mistakes made, he, which he admits to, from the police uh, investigation. But, you know, when you confront them with, with the fact that there's no hard proof, they still really subscribed to the, the issues that could be attributed to Damien's mental health issues or to his um, goth sort of persona. And it still seems, in some ways, still rooted in that place. I still think that if he was presenting himself as he did then, now, it wouldn't be much different. That, that, that town is pretty, um, it's quite specific. It's specific to a lot of towns like it, actually. You know, it's, it's quite conservative. And it's shocking when you go to Memphis, Tennessee, and then you cross the bridge into Arkansas and you're in West Memphis, and it's a whole different world. 
I recall a lot of underground musicians rallying to the support of the West Memphis Three as this was going on, particularly people like Henry Rollins and the underground kind of punk and metal community. Did that have any role or did music have any role in this film? Yeah, it does. Um, but, but we were going to music of that period. So there's a, a lot of Slayer in, in this, uh, in this uh, um, film because that, um, you know, we tried, um, you know, some other bands, but that just seemed like, you know, to be very, I wasn't using contemporary music. Everything is sort of rooted in the early 90s. So I know very little about the case, but just watching the trailer and Colin and Reese's performance, it, it's, it's intriguing. It's, it's so powerful and looks so well done. Um, what challenges or obstacles or how your approach with Reese and Colin that they were portraying these real, ca these real people did you find during the course of this filming? Well, uh, okay, so they're playing uh, in this town where everyone believes this, this, this narrative. Um, they're playing two characters who start off believing that narrative as well. I mean, she's a mother whose who's ch child has been found murdered in the worst possible way. So, you know, she, she said, as she said publicly at the time, there's a very famous uh, clip on the local news, uh, which we, we uh, recreated in the film, where she says, just look at them. They're freaks. You know, like, you know, like of course they did it. Uh, so she's on the record of having said that, but over the course of the trial and the time afterwards, she completely reversed her opinion. And that, that was based on an emotional, intuitive sense that something was amiss. Uh, and we see that transition in the film, but it's coming from a very intuitive space. With Colin, he's a, an investigator, so he's very super rational, very sort of objective, and he goes in thinking that they did it, but he also begins to see that the the that the various points don't kind of like line up they're, they're not connected and and he realized that there's a whole travesty of justice but he can't do anything because he's not a lawyer he's just working for the lawyers and you kind of get a sense in the film of his frustration so these two characters become aligned and uh by the end of the film you know they meet and they kind of have this really powerful scene where they have a mutual kind of recognition of the fact that they're the only two people in this town who are questioning anything, but through totally different means. And so it's, um, it, it's you, you'll see it. I mean, it, but, 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 but very different approaches. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, thank Adam. You. It was wonderful. Thank you. And thank please you. check out the film. It's thank on you. demand and thank it's you. going on iTunes very shortly and in limited release in theaters as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was great.